Let us pray. Father, I, I thank you that you do give us your spirit, that you open the eyes of our heart, and that we, you give us the ability to see you and understand something of you. And I pray that you would do that for us today. As we hear your word, may we receive it and respond as you would have us to respond. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's common around the Feast of the Ascension to hear it said that Ascension is one of the most overlooked of the feasts of the life of our, our Savior. And I think it's true that it is one of the, though it is in our tradition, in, in the church calendar, in traditional tradition, it is one of the major feast days on par with Christmas and Easter. It is true that I think it is often uh, overlooked. And part of it, I think, is because it, is, it may be the hardest event in Christ's life to understand. And I, don't, I don't mean that the incarnation is easier to understand, necessarily. It's, it's easy to understand. Nor that we really understand what happens in His passion and resurrection. I don't think we understand much of what goes on in His incarnation or in His Passion and Resurrection. But at least in those events, we have something to, to look at, some tangible thing that we can see it represents what's going on. We have a baby. We have His blood, His corpse. We have His risen body that eats and talks and teaches. We have something to look at, to grab a hold of in these other feasts, these other celebrations that we do. Not so much with the ascension. He's gone. To somewhere, to sit at the right hand of the Father, whatever that may mean. Something about power and authority, we know that. But what does it mean for this physical being to go to heaven, to sit at the right hand of God who is spirit? All those sorts of things, we can't get a hold of that. I don't know what that means. And so it's, it's hard to, to celebrate in, in some sense. And the Bible doesn't give us answers to a lot of those sorts of things. It does tell us something about the result, what comes because He has ascended. And we're going to look a little bit about, of that in, from Ephesians today. But I will warn you, it's pretty hard to understand as well. When I prepare for a sermon, I, I read the, the, the lessons very early in the week, at the very beginning of the week, and I sort of sit on them throughout the week and then really do much of the preparation near the end. And when I first read the readings, there are times when I come across a passage and I, my initial reaction is, I can't preach that. I, I can't preach that. And it's never because I think it's an unpopular passage. It's something that will ruffle feathers that is, that is uh, something that is too hard for the ears. It's, my reaction is almost always, I can't preach that, because the passage is just too grand, too lofty. And I feel that if I say anything about that passage, I will be doing damage to the passage. The best thing to do is to simply listen to the reading, hear and accept and rejoice 
in the greatness of what is, is, is in Scripture, what God gives us in the Word. And I don't want to pick it apart and lessen that passage. By the way, this is why you should pay close attention to the reading of Scripture before I preach. The readings of Scripture before we preach are not simply preparation for the sermon. Right, let's listen to this so that we can get ready to hear the sermon, because the sermon's the important part. You're hearing pure truth in the reading of the Word. Hopefully, you're hearing truth in the sermon, but it's more likely that you're going to hear error in the sermon than it is you're going to hear error in the reading of Scripture. Listen to the Word. The public reading of the Word is important. When I first read, now going back, after that aside, when I first read the Ephesians passage today, uh, for the today, my initial reaction is I, I can't preach that. It's too much. It's too great. It's too something. Um, but I was, felt compelled to, to talk about it a little bit. So I hope to do that gently without pulling too much on it and to allow hopefully, just to, to look at it. I encourage you to go back and just read it when we're done um, and, and just reflect on, on its, its, um, its grandeur. There are certainly more loftier passages, high, more high-flying passages of Scripture. Um, but this has an intimate grandeur about it. It's a special thing when someone says, I'm praying for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. That's good. That's helpful. There's something more special when someone you know loves you, says, I'm going to pray for you, and here is what I'm praying for you, specifically for you. Here are the things that I'm praying for you because this is what I know that you need in your life. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's looking at the Ephesians and, says, and saying, I love you, and I'm praying for you. And here's the thing I think that you need. And here's the thing that I'm praying for you. So to whom first does he pray? Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. Now the Arians took this to mean that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ took that phrase to mean that Jesus was not God. He was a lesser created being. That the Father was Jesus' God, just as He is our God. The church has said, no, this is not true. Um, and the Arians miss the fact that there is subordination within the Trinity while maintaining the unity of essence. And I think we see that throughout the entire book of um, Ephesians, that truth, while, and, and certainly throughout the, the Pauline corpus, the fact that there is a subordination while maintaining the unity of essence. And the essence is in play when he says the Father of glory. The concept of glory here refers to the very essence of being here. God's essence of his being. The fact that he is indeed being itself. The summation of all his attributes, 
the complete wholeness of all that He is as reflected in the splendor and power and radiance of His glory. And what being and what value we have is but a reflection of the pure glory of God. And Paul says, this is the one I'm praying for. The very thing that is being itself. The very thing that is truth and goodness and beauty itself. I'm bringing you before that. Before God. The God of glory. He is not just a glorious Father, as one commentator put it, but He is the Father to whom all glory belongs. And it is to this God that Paul prays. And what does he pray for? That this God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. There is some debate over what this spirit is referring to. Is it human spirit? Or is it the Holy Spirit? Is it God pouring out His, His Spirit upon us? I think that the latter is preferred because it is a spirit of revelation which is what the Holy Spirit comes to do, to reveal. And reveal here means to sort of pull back the veil on the mysteries of God, to show us things that we could not on our own know or see or receive or participate in. He brings us that he said, this is what I want for you, for the eyes, your eyes to be opened, that you receive a spirit of revelation so that you may know God. Know thyself is an ancient and venerable admonition. It's one of the Delphic maxims that is inscribed on the temple to Apollo the ancient temple in Greece. And its effect, its the, the resonance from this maxim has, has gone throughout all of Western civilization. It has driven much of our effort, the desire to know ourselves. And it is no less prominent today, in spite of the fact that the very concept of self grows ever more vague and inscrutable these days. Our social drivers and our therapies largely are largely based on the maxim that knowing, know thyself, be yourself. And part of the staying power of this maxim is that it, it, it produces results. There are good things we learn as we learn, as we drive and then drive to know ourselves. But especially in our current, sort of the, the, the current way, the current form of knowing ourselves, there are also great harms that do it. I, I think of it as a, a cultural medicine that should come with a disclaimer, right? Know thyself may lead to increased isolation, disconnectedness, and disunity. 
You may also experience elevated levels of anxiety and sensitivity. Talk to your doctor and see if know thyself is right for you. It's not a bad thing to know yourself. Good. But it is not what Scripture prescribes. It is not what the Bible says should drive our efforts, our intellectual efforts, our emotional efforts. This is not the end and the goal. The Bible constantly says, know the one who is being. Know the one who is glory. Know the one from whom you get your being and your value. Do not mistake yourself for God. Know God. That is where your efforts, your, what should drive you. Know God. And Paul prays that we receive the Spirit, the help of the Spirit in this pursuit. I pray that you receive the Spirit of Revelation so that you may know God. This seems like an impossible task. For those of us who have grown up in the church, we've heard all our life, know God. And it seems like such a vague concept, it is simply impossible. But Paul insists that it is not impossible. The next clause, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And this is not, there's debate over this as well, but it seems clear to me, this is not a part of the request. It's not Paul, not Paul saying, I'm praying that you receive the spirit of revelation, and I'm praying that, you receive, that the, the eyes of your heart are opened. Rather, this is a statement that is added to what is, what is being given, that you have had, since you have had, the eyes of your heart opened. Since you've been made one of God's people, one who is capable of knowing God, of seeing the things of God, this is who you are. As you've been brought into Christ, as you have received the Spirit, your eyes have been, the eyes of your heart have been opened, and you are capable of this. We have what we need. Paul goes on, and here is where I get lost. Here's where things become too much for me. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know that which is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory and glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are the things that it takes the Spirit to help us understand what, what this really means. Not just know, but to experience these things. And I cannot, I cannot do that. I sat looking at this page, this passage, and looking at an empty page, wanting to write something down and finding nothing to say. So let me just um, go through quickly, and, and I, my prayer is that these things, as we grow and mature, become more real for us. Three things, he says, that he wants the Spirit to make real for us. The hope to which he has called you. We may know it, the hope to which he has called us. 
hope, confidence. This has been my prayer for us throughout the Easter season, that we grow in our confidence in what God has done. And I think that's what Paul is praying here as well. Calling, we tend to use the word calling in terms of vocation. I'm called to be a, a pastor. Uh, that's not what Paul's referring to here, not your specific calling vocation in life. He's referring to the calling of, God, of people to God. As you have been called into the family of God, I want you to have the confidence of knowing what that means. Have confidence in the fact that you have been brought into this family. That you've been made something new. I want you to have confidence in that. Secondly, I want you to know what are the immeasurable greatness... Oh, no, excuse me. Um, what is the, uh, the riches of His inglorious inheritance in the saints? In verse 11, Paul has said that we, had, we have entain, obtained an inheritance. Here he refers to us as his inheritance. And this is something that has, in large part, stumped the commentators. They're all over the place, and many of them just refuse to comment on it. What does it mean for us to be his inheritance? And some would say that means it's the inheritance that he gives, but it doesn't seem to be what's going on here. Somehow, we, we are God's portion. I don't know what in the world that means. But there is a greatness and a richness that comes from that to us. And God wants us to know that. You are my portion. You are my people. And I want you to know that. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? He is power. All that He has, He is. He is that. And He, he has that towards us. He wants you to know that, that whatever you're facing, He is there with His power. Will He exercise that power in the way that you want Him to? Very often, probably not. But He will exercise that power in your behalf in the way that is best for us. The immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe towards us who open ourselves up to Him and receive that from Him. He does not withhold Himself from us. And how did we receive these great blessings, which are so great that it takes God Himself to come and open our eyes to see? We receive them according to the great working of His might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him up from the dead and seated Him at, the, at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him 
who fills all in all. His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. We do not have, somehow in some way that I cannot tell you, we do not have these glorious riches if Christ does not ascend on high and go to the Father. I don't know what it means for Him to ascend on high and go to the Father, but we don't have the glories of what He offers us unless He does. Paul tells us that he takes us with him, in a sense, that we are with him at the right hand. That he ever lives to intercede for us there. These truths are worth celebrating. Rejoicing over. And asking God, as Paul does, to help us grow in an understanding of them, a participation in them. And as I have stated over and over and again today, that we grow in our confidence in the fact that these things are true. That these things don't become simply something that we hear once a year on Ascension Day, but they become a normal part of our life. The truths of who we are form and shape what we do, not just at church, but at home with our families, at our work, that we move about with a confidence in what God has done. A confidence because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Nothing you will face in life will change that fact. The great difficulties and tragedies that we go through. I don't want to, I do not diminish them. Those are difficult. But when we go through them, nothing about fundamental reality has changed. Christ is still seated at the right hand of the Father. He is still ascended on high, taking us with him. He still intercedes for us at the, at the right hand of the Father. Have confidence in that. As we celebrate today, the fact that He has ascended on high, and we look for His coming again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.